Hi, this is Brent White, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I preached the following message on June 25th, 2017. This is part two of my two-part sermon series on the parable of the prodigal son, and we're going to focus on the story of the older son in today's sermon. And what follows is a what I hope is a powerful message about God's grace. I preached this message on Patriotic Sunday. It was a week before Independence Day, but our church was making a special presentation with flags in honor and memory of veterans that we know and love. So I make reference to that in the sermon. I'm going to read now from Luke chapter 15, beginning with verse 25. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Well, of course, one of the many blessings of our nation is the First Amendment, and the freedom that we have to gather here and worship. The freedom that we have to feel safe and to feel like um, our government is not out to get us and is not going to act in an arbitrary way, but is committed to the rule of law. One country in the world where that is not the case is, of course, North Korea. And it was just last week when we got some heartbreaking news about that University of Virginia student who last year in February was convicted by the uh, North Korean government um, and sentenced to 15 years of hard labor for stealing a painting in the hallway of a hotel or something or a picture, very small crime, even if he committed it. I'm not putting a lot of faith in the justice system of North Korea, um, but even if he committed it, it was a small crime. And he never was able to serve the sentence because he died after suffering a brain injury while he was in custody in North Korea. He came back in a coma, and he died um, this past week. (coughs) After his death, a sociology professor at the University of Delaware posted on Facebook that this student, um, Otto Warmbier, got exactly what he deserved. He went to North Korea, for heaven's sake, and then acted like a spoiled, naive, arrogant U.S. college student who had never had to face 
the consequences of his actions. I see him crying at his sentencing hearing and think, what did you expect? As you might expect, the response to this professor's post was overwhelmingly critical, rightly so. The university apologized on her behalf. And as tempted as I am to to pile on, I remember the uncharitable thoughts that I had this time a year ago, over a year ago, when we first heard the news about this student. And these thoughts went through my head, like, what was, what was he doing in North Korea? And, and, and if, in fact, he, he stole this picture, what was he thinking? I felt, in those moments, morally superior to him. And obviously, this past week, this professor did as well. But why do we feel morally superior well, to anyone. We've all made plenty of foolish decisions ourselves. We've all sinned in spectacular ways. The difference is, unlike this poor college student, none of us has received a death sentence for our lapses in judgment, for our foolishness, for our sins. So what's our problem? Why aren't we more compassionate? I think it's because you and I are not really so different from the older brother in this parable. In other words, we aren't so different from the Pharisees because Jesus is telling this parable in order to communicate something to the Pharisees who resented that Jesus was reaching out in love and grace and mercy to tax collectors and sinners. Now, that you look at verses 1 and 2 of this chapter, when, when, it, when Luke says sinners, that's, a, that's sort of a category. He's not, saying, he's not saying that there are some people who were sinners and some people who aren't. No, indeed, we're all sinners. We've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. But the, these, these people who were known as sinners, they were... They were people who were sort of out in public in, in, in sort of um, uh, um, conspicuously breaking God's law. Prostitutes, of course, would be uh, one class of sinners that this refers to. But Luke is not saying that uh, some people aren't sinners. And of course, tax collectors, we all know they were considered traitors to the nation of Israel. They were They were um, working and conspiring with the Roman government who itself sent an occupying army into their country and were oppressing the people. And these tax collectors, though Jewish, were collaborating with them. These were people that were despised um, by... Uh, the Jews who were living in Palestine. Jesus, often throughout the Gospels, is, has harsh words to say about Pharisees. He calls them hypocrites, whitewashed tombs, blind guides, children of the devil, 
But in this parable, we are reminded that as much as Jesus hates their sins, and as emphatic as he is that they need to repent or else face judgment, Jesus also loves these Pharisees. He has great compassion on them. As much as he loves tax collectors and sinners, Jesus also loves Pharisees. And that that comes through loud and clear in this parable. We are not much like Jesus, I'm afraid. We often say, hate the sin and love the sinner. But that is a very delicate balancing act that we often get wrong. We usually end up loving the sin, loving the sinner and being okay with the sin or, or hating the sin and not liking the sinner very much either. Jesus doesn't have that problem. Jesus believes that sin is ugly, awful, spiritually dangerous, deadly. And unless we repent of our sins, we will be on a path that leads to hell. But Jesus loves us sinners so much that he does everything he can to prevent that from happening. Giving his very life on the cross. My point is, Jesus has great compassion on sinners like the older son in this parable. So we should too. Jesus also sympathizes. He expresses sympathy here for the older son. And so let's take a moment to sympathize with him. After all, recall from last week when we looked at the first half of the parable, this younger son's decision to take his share of his father's estate, go off to that foreign land and squander every bit of it, was incredibly costly in so many ways to the father and to the older son. It was costly emotionally. It was costly in terms of the family's status in the community. I mean, the the younger son brought dishonor on this family that you can't, that, that kind of blow to your reputation, you can't survive it very well in a, in a shame honor culture of, of uh, the first century. Um, they were a laughing stock, and the, and the older son was going to have to deal with that for the rest of his life. Not to mention, of course, the great financial burden that the younger son's decisions. Um, brought upon the father and the older son. I mean, think about it. When the father tells his older son in verse 31 that all that is mine is yours, he's speaking the literal truth. Because remember, the father has already divided up his estate between the two sons. The younger son has spent every dime uh, of what he was given. So literally, everything that the older son has now is from his father. And that's going to have to be enough to support both him and his father. And now, the younger son. I mean, if the father father had at least let the younger son be a servant and work for him, 
then maybe the younger son could have begun to pay back the debt that he owed his family. But obviously this this amazing generosity, graciousness and mercy, forgiveness that the father has has given to the younger son has, has made that impossible. When the father orders his servants to kill the fattened calf, the fattened calf belongs to the older son, right? I mean, this livestock is his property. So even that costs him something. Forgiveness, as always, is incredibly costly. Someone's got to pay for it. The older son understands that. And, and what has the younger son done to prove that he's worth that cost? Absolutely nothing. And this is the heart of the problem for the older son and for the Pharisees. Sinners like the younger son don't deserve forgiveness. They don't deserve Mercy. They don't deserve God's love. Like the professor that I mentioned in the introduction, there's something deeply satisfying about being able to say he got what he deserved. And yet God's grace means that we who believe in Jesus don't get what we deserve. Praise God. In fact, in order to receive God's grace to begin with, We have to acknowledge that we don't deserve it. This is why elsewhere in the Gospels, Jesus says to the Pharisees, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. Why? Because tax collectors and prostitutes know who they are. They know that they're sinners who can't begin to earn forgiveness. They know that they're helpless. They know... That if they make it to heaven, it's going to be an act of sheer mercy on God's part and nothing else. That's why I love Alcoholics Anonymous in the 12 steps. I'm not in AA myself, but what I like is that these members of AA, they know that they have nothing to hide from one another. They confess at every meeting that they are sinners, they are alcoholics, that they're completely helpless over their sin. And without God, they are hopeless. Church should be more like that. We, we should come in every week and say something like, hi, I'm Pastor Brent and I'm a sinner. And apart from God's grace made possible by the death of his son Jesus on the cross, I am helpless. That would be a step in the right direction. I know a a pastor, a pastor who, when he talks about going to heaven, he uses language like this. He says, if I should be so fortunate to go to heaven someday. Now, I've never told him this. He's like way up here and I'm way down here in the pecking order. (laughs) But I really hate when he uses that language of if. If I make it to heaven, because I want to ask him, on what basis do you think anyone gets to heaven? No one deserves it. You know that, right? And I think he does know that. I think he uses this if language as a a sign of humility or something, but I don't like it. 
Because friends, I need you to hear me say this. If you understand the gospel of Jesus Christ and you understand what Christ accomplished on the cross and you believe it, there are simply no ifs about going to heaven. Once you've accepted Christ as your Savior, God is not waiting to see how you're going to do, how you're going to perform, how you're going to live the rest of your life. When you accept Christ, the question is settled. Your sins are forgiven. You're born again. You have a righteousness that is not your own, but it belongs to Christ Himself. And it's on that basis that you're saved to begin with. And so you can say with the Apostle Paul, I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Why? What gives us the confidence to say that? Is it what we do? Is it our good works? No. It's the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, on the cross, Christ took all of our sins, past, present, and future, and suffered and died for them, paid the penalty for them that we are unable to pay. There, is no, there are no additional sins that need to be accounted for, paid for, wiped away. It is finished, Jesus said from the cross, and he meant it. So if we have sincerely trusted in Christ for our salvation, yet we still wonder if, we still worry about if, we struggle to believe that God has truly forgiven us, it might be because there's still, there's still a little bit of the older son inside of us. Why do I say that? Well, look what he says in verse 29. Look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. These many years I have served you. That word in Greek, by the way, could literally be translated, these many years I have slaved away for you. And I'm sure when the father hears his older son say these words, it breaks his heart. The father wouldn't have been wrong to say, but I never asked you to serve me like that. I don't need you to serve me. I don't need anything from you. Your brother had the same misguided idea when he came home. He tried to tell me, uh, Father, let me be a servant. Let me just be a servant. Make me like one of your servants. And I didn't even let him finish uh, that thought. I didn't let him get those words out of his mouth because this is not what our relationship is about. I'm sorry that you had that idea. You're not my servant. You're my son. What I want from you is not service. What I want from you is love. You've been waiting all these years for me to, for me to pay you in some way. You have me. What else could you want or need besides that? 
Jesus said, even the Son of Man did not come to be what? Served. But to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So in a way, we don't need to serve the Lord. The Lord needs to serve us because we are sinners who who need God's grace at every moment. And thank God that he does serve us. One pastor said, The gospel is not a help-wanted sign from God. It is a help-available sign from God. Do you see the difference? Jesus came to give us the kind of help that we really needed, the kind of eternal help that we needed. It's available if only we'll ask, if only we'll trust, if only we'll believe. And of course, I know, I talk about serving Jesus myself, but I need to be careful um, because it's, it's, hard to, it's hard to think of service without thinking of payment and obligation and duty and compensation, words that are not at all associated with Christ-like love. And what does Paul say in Romans about this? To the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. We need our faith counted as righteousness. God gives his children nothing but free gifts. If it's from God, it's a free gift. It's by grace. That was clear in the case of the younger son, which we saw last week. I mean, he clearly did nothing to deserve his father's many gifts. He did nothing to deserve having, you know, the best coat put on him, the best robe put on him, the signet ring of his father put on him. He did not deserve to have this status as, as, a, as a full-fledged child of his father, a full-fledged member of his father. Family. He didn't deserve that at all. Those were all gifts. Everything from God is a gift. See, the older son and the younger son really have the same problem. Or at least the younger son before he returns home has the same problem now as the older son. The younger son, before he returns home, says, I don't deserve this, therefore I need to work hard to earn it. And he was wrong. The older son says, I've worked hard to earn it, therefore I deserve it. Either way, they believed that their father loved them conditionally, that the father's love for them depended on what they did. The parable, this parable, says emphatically, no, that is not true. It is all grace. Now, the parable of the prodigal son is actually one of three parables that are found here in Luke chapter 15, which for my money is perhaps the greatest chapter in all of Scripture, rivaled only, I think, by Romans chapter 8. But all three of these parables are beautiful, pictures of of God's grace. And of course, nothing beats the parable of the prodigal son. Um, 
But Jesus, remember, tells all three of these parables to for the benefit of the Pharisees, hoping that they'll hear it, that their hearts will melt, and that they'll change. First, the parable of the lost sheep. Remember, the, the, the shepherd has a hundred sheep. He loses one. He, at great risk, goes to find that one lost, lost sheep. And when he gets the lost sheep and brings it back to the sheep pen, he's so excited to have found this precious thing that was lost that he calls his friends and neighbors and they throw a big party. And the next parable is the parable of the lost coin. A woman who has 10 silver coins loses one of them. Just one of them. But it's precious to her. And so she turns the house upside down looking for this one coin. And when she finds it, it's so valuable and precious to her that she calls her friends and neighbors and says, Rejoice with me. I found this. This is so exciting. Come to my party. And in the first part of the prodigal son parable, the same kind of thing happens, except obviously this father has lost something infinitely more valuable than livestock or precious metal. He's lost his son. The most precious thing that he has. And when he finds his son again, well, Naturally, I mean, if the shepherd is celebrating a sheep and the woman is celebrating a coin, it's the biggest party imaginable when the father finds his lost son. See, there's a theme here. When something is really valuable to you and you've lost it and you search for it and you find it, that is worthy of celebration if this thing is valuable to you. So so why didn't the Pharisees want to celebrate? Well, because they didn't think that these sinners that Jesus was finding were all that valuable. And why did they feel that way? Because a person's value was determined by what they did or what they failed to do. And I'm telling you, I'm not so different from these Pharisees. Except, I don't usually look with disgust at the tax collectors and the sinners over there who are being received into God's kingdom. More often than not, I look with disgust at one particular tax collector or sinner And he's right here. Yes, Jesus is saving this person, and that ought to be great news. But so often I don't feel like celebrating. I mean, what is is this person worth? Because like the Pharisees, like the older son... I too often believe that my worth is based on what I do and what I achieve and how successful I am and who loves me and what people think about me and whether or not I'm, you know, I'm physically fit. I mean, let me tell this embarrassing story, but a couple of weeks ago, annual conference, I I run, you know, and, and, um, and there's a 5K race every year, and I won it one year. It, it, 
hey, Amy Daniel, it wasn't very, where are you at? It wasn't very competitive. It's a bunch of preachers running this race. But I, but I ran it, and I, and I won, and I always do pretty well, you know? People know me as, as a, pretty, a pretty good runner. And, well, this year, this all, you know this happens, Amy. I had an, got an injury. I, uh, 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 my um, Achilles tendon in my left, uh, my left leg. And I couldn't run. And I was, I was so angry about it. Why? Because I, let's face it, I'm getting old. Yeah, that's part of it. But also because, you know, I derive a lot of value out of being faster than so many of my colleagues. One year, Mark Richt ran the race when he was at Georgia. And it wasn't like Georgia Tech was ever beating him. So I beat Mark Rick. That was exciting. <laughs> but so, so I, I realized, even though I would never consciously think this, I realized that, that you know, I, I get a lot of value and self-worth and self-esteem out of the fact that I can run this race and compete and maybe even win. I can't win anymore. My son Townsend's faster than me, for one thing, and he runs it. But um, so this is what I'm talking about. Why, why? Why do I care? Why do I care about these external uh, benchmarks and standards by which I measure myself and try to find value for myself? What does that matter? The only thing that matters is what my heavenly father thinks about me. And you know what he thinks about me? He thinks this, Brent, when God rescued you, he thought you were worth a big party. He thought you were worth celebrating. When God rescued Martha, Martha, you know what he thought? He thought, Martha is so precious and so valuable to me that now that, now that I've rescued her, let's, let's throw a big party. Ashley, do you know, do you know, do you know what you're worth to our father? When, when, when our father rescued you, he thought to himself, Ashley is worth so much to me that we're just going to throw the biggest party. That's how, that's how much you're worth. That's how much each and every one of you is worth in the Father's eyes. Hasn't He proven it? Hasn't He proven it by, by sending His Son, Jesus, to, to, to pay an infinite price to rescue us? Don't listen. Don't listen to that older brother in your head who's telling you you're not worth it. You listen to our Father Jesus said, greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. The reason that we have honored and remembered the men and women in uniform this morning for their sacrifices, for their service, is because in their own way, they have loved us. We don't think of, you know, military people as loving us, but that's exactly what they do. In fact, through their sacrifice, they demonstrate a little bit, a little bit of Christ-like love. And when, and when they lay down their lives literally in battle and war, 
Well, greater love hath no man than this, right? So we rightly honor and celebrate those sacrifices and that service. There is a, I can't think of a movie over the past 25 years that has sort of told the story of that kind of sacrifice as well or better than Saving Private Ryan. If you've seen it, you'll remember the dying words that Captain Miller, played by Tom Hanks, spoke to Matt Damon's Private Ryan. After nearly everyone in the unit dies in order to save Ryan's life, Miller says, with his dying breath, earn this. Earn it. Remember? And next, in the movie, we see an elderly Ryan standing beside the grave markers on Normandy Beach, asking his children, asking his grandchildren, did I earn it? In other words, did he live a life worthy of the sacrifices that Miller and his fellow soldiers made for him so long ago? Did he deserve the life that their deaths made possible for him? And his family, I mean, they, they were so compassionate and they, and they, and they said, uh, of course you did, Dad. And I'm thinking, Really? Who are they kidding? A dozen men sacrificed their lives in order to save his? How can, how can he possibly earn that? What can he possibly do to pay for that? What a, what a cruel thing for Captain Miller to tell him with his dying breath. What an impossible burden to have to live up to. What guilt to have to live with for your entire life. That's the kind of burden and the kind of guilt that makes older sons out of us. By contrast, when Jesus, the world's one and only true Savior, willingly sacrificed His life on the cross to save ours, He didn't say, earn this as if any one of us could earn God in the flesh suffering death and hell for us in our place. No, our Savior didn't say earn this. He said instead, receive this. Receive this gift. Receive it. Take it for free. It's yours. There's no guilt anymore. I've taken care of it. I I did it for you. I did it out of love for you because I love you that much and, and you couldn't do it for yourself and I wanted to have you with me for eternity. Take this. It's yours. It's free. I ask nothing. Just take it. Receive this gift. Receive this gift. Amen. Almighty God, we are overwhelmed by your amazing grace. 
let anyone within the sound of my voice who hasn't experienced your amazing, justifying, saving, sanctifying grace, let them receive this gift even today. Why, why leave this church? Why leave behind this opportunity to accept this free gift that you are offering them? Please move them by, the, by your Holy Spirit to do that. And move each one of us by your Spirit in this next week to love you and let everything we do for you spring from this pure, wholehearted kind of love. By the power of your Spirit, and in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you're on the south side of Atlanta on Sunday morning, I hope you'll feel free to come and worship with us at Hampton United Methodist Church. We are on West Main Street in downtown Hampton, and we have two worship services. We have a 9 o'clock acoustic contemporary service and an 11 o'clock traditional service. Hope to see you there.